Today's reading is 1 Samuel 8 and can be found on page 277 in the Red Bibles. And we have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Bathsheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so now they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I wonder how many of you have ever read the book or seen either of the films of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Hands up, who knows? Who knows Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? It's interesting, not, not, a lot of people don't know it. You wouldn't know, would you? But a lot of people, well, if you don't know it, 
Basically, the story of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is that five children win a, a golden ticket in a bar of chocolate. And if they get that golden ticket, then they get taken on a tour round the chocolate factory of an eccentric and reclusive chocolate magnate called Willy Wonka. The children don't realize it, but he's invited them there for a reason. Gradually, over the book or over the film, four of these children turn out to be very obnoxious, and they're whittled down, leaving only one, Charlie, left. And he wins a prize. But, but what's really interesting in the book is how the children are whittled down. Because it's pretty much the same formula every time. A child says that they want something or they demand something that they really shouldn't have. Willy Wonka, the owner of the factory, says, no, that's not a good idea, don't do it. The child says, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And in each case, Willy Wonka could, could really do more than he does to stop them. He says, don't do it. Then they go and do it anyway. And well, their punishment is that they get what they wanted. They, um, he leaves them to the consequences of their actions. Here's a clip of that very thing happening to a girl called Violet who loves chewing gum. Finito! That's all? That's all? Don't you know what this is? My gum, it's gum! Wrong! It's the most amazing, fabulous, sensational gum in the whole world. What's so fab about it? This little piece of gum is a three-course dinner. Bull! No, roast beef, but I haven't got it quite right yet. I don't care! Oh! I wouldn't do that. I really wouldn't. So long as it's gum, then that's for me. Violet, now don't you do anything stupid. <gasps> What's it taste like? It's tomato soup. It's hot and creamy. I can actually feel it running down my throat. Stop. Don't. Why doesn't she listen to Mr. Wonka? Because, Charlie, she's a nitwit. It sure is great soup. Hey, the second course is coming up. Roast beef and a baked potato. Mmm. With sour cream? <laughs> What's for dessert, baby? Dessert? Here it comes. Blueberry pie and cream. It's the most marvelous blueberry pie I've ever face. tasted. Holy Toledo, what's happening to your face? Cool it, Dad. Let me finish. Yeah, but your face is turning blue. Violet, you're turning violet, Violet. What are you talking about? I told you I hadn't got it quite right yet. You can say that again. Look what it's done to my kid. It always goes wrong when we come to the dessert. Mm. Always. Violet, what are you doing now? You're blowing up. I feel I'm not surprised. What's happening? You're blowing up like a balloon. Like a blueberry. Somebody do something. Call a doctor. Stick her with a pin. She'll pop. It happens every time. They all become blueberries. You've really done it this time, haven't you, Wonka? I'll break you for this. Oh, well, I'll get it right in the end. Help! Help! Oh, we gotta let the air out of her quick. There's no air in there. Hmm? That's juice. Juice? Would you roll the young lady down to the juicing room at once, please? What for? So you see what's happened? Violet really wants the chewing gum. Willy Wonka says, don't do it. It's not very wise. She goes, chewing gum for me. Eats the chewing gum. And she kind of did what I did over Christmas, but with Christmas cake, really, and ends up being wheeled away by the umpa lumpers, taken off to be squeezed. Uh, and so really, she faces the consequences of her actions. And in our passage today in 1 Samuel, we see exactly that same situation being set up. And we'll see the out kind of flow of that as we look at Saul, the king, over the next, uh, all the way through till Easter, really. The same thing has happened to Violet is going to happen to the people of Israel. 
In our passage, we're coming, as Sarah said, to the end of the age of the judges, that age of peaks and troughs where things go bad and God raises up a judge and things go well and then the judge dies and things go bad again. This sort of cycle of chaos that's happened over and over again. And this chapter is a conversation between the people of Israel and God with Samuel as the priest and judge standing as intermediary between them. So you get this kind of thing of people, Samuel, God, Samuel, people, this kind of flowing conversation. And this plays out over three sections, verses 1 to 5, verses 6 to 9, and verses 10 to 22, which I've called, and you've got a picture kind of like quite an aggressive voice here. What's your problem? Here's your real problem. And now we've really got a problem. You know, I think Arnold Schwarzenegger or someone like that. Uh, I spent a long time coming up with those headlines. But let's start with verses 1 to 5. What's your problem? Verse 1 starts, when Samuel grew old. In chapters 1 to 7, as Sarah said, the story focused on Judge Samuel. How God raised him up from when he was a little child to be that judge who would restore the people of Israel. But now... Samuel's old. And if you were an Israelite who knew your recent history, that was a worry. When a judge dies, you get one of those ages of chaos. Even now, his abilities are declining. It said he's appointed his two sons to help him out. They're based right down in Bathsheba, which is right in the south. So presumably that's freed Samuel up just to focus on the northern end. Sort of his resources are running dry. He can't do as much as he could before. But you see, what's interesting here is no judge, no judge had ever made their child a judge alongside them. It was not an inherited position. In fact, in Judges chapter 8, the famous judge Gideon completely rejected the idea of making his sons and his grandsons judges after him. What seems even worse, of course, is that we see in verse 3, Samuel's sons are really bad at judging. They don't judge fairly. They're corrupt. They've accepted bribes. They've perverted judge justice. They're basically the opposite of what a judge should be. So they can't be allowed to take over after Samuel dies. And so the people think to themselves, oh, we've got a problem. We've got a problem here. What can we do to stop another cycle of chaos? This is a problem. We can see it coming down the road. What can we do to prevent it? And the answer they come up with is verse 5. I know. Let's ask Samuel to ask God to appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Maybe a a king like all the other nations with that sort of inheritance so that there's a seamless transition. Maybe that will prevent this cycle of chaos. Great. Problem solved. But this brings us to our second point. Verses 6 to 9. Here's your real problem. In verse 6, Samuel begrudgingly relays the people's request to God. In the Hebrew, it's a lot stronger than it is in our, in our Bibles. It says um, it was evil in his eyes, the people's request. But even though he's appalled, he passes it up the chain. In response, God gets to the heart of the problem. 
God points out to Samuel that even though Samuel's upset, and maybe he's feeling a bit rejected here that the people have decided they don't want really him and his sons anymore, they want a king, but God gets to the heart. The truth of the matter, Samuel, is that the request is a rejection of God as king, not really of Samuel. That's what he says, isn't it? Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. In verse 8, God shows Samuel that this is in fact just one of many ways in which the people of Israel had been rejecting God ever since he saved them from Egypt. In fact, God says that their request for a king like the other nations is really a rejection of him in the same way as they're going after foreign idols, as they're worshipping other gods. It's the same rejection of the covenant relationship God made with them when he called them out from Egypt. It's the same thing of saying, we want to be like all the other nations. When God called them out, what did he say? He said, I want to set you apart. I want to set you apart of my special people, my holy nation, a nation that every other nation can look to and say, wow, they're different. They are God's people. But what are they saying to God? They're saying, we don't want that. We want to be like all the other nations. God says, Samuel, you see, this is the real problem. In fact, this has been the real problem all along. This is why there was chaos in between each of the judges, just as Sarah showed us. Not because the system doesn't work, but because the people keep rebelling. They keep sinning. They keep failing to obey God. In fact, having a king in and of itself isn't necessarily wrong for the Israelites. Because we see in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God clearly makes provision for one. But there's, all, there's a catch. God says you can have a king, but he must not be like the other nations. Your king must be different. He must be like I'm calling you to be. But that's not what they want. Again and again, they say, give us a king like all the other nations have. And so you see, the people have got it completely wrong. They want to fix a problem, the problem of the cycle of chaos. But what they're seeing is really only a symptom of a deeper problem. The real cause of all their problems is their continuing rejection of God. If they could fix that, then the problem of the cycle of chaos would be fixed too. But instead, their idea, their solution to make a king like all the other nations, well, that's only going to make the real problem worse. It's like a house fire and someone says, get every liquid you can possibly get. And someone comes running up with a bucket full of petrol and goes, here we go. It's only going to make it worse. And so it won't end well. And so in verse 9, God tells Samuel to tell them this is really not a good idea. In our, in our third section, verses 10 to 22, Samuel does that. Verse 10 tells us he tells them everything God has told him, warning them that there will be consequences. 
In verses 11 to 17, he even gets hold of, of something like a list of the rights of an ancient king. We found, well, I haven't, archaeologists have found lists in kingdoms like the old ancient Hittite kingdoms, lists of the rights of kings, the thing that a king was owed by virtue of being a king. And he lists off the things, and he says, this is what you're going to owe to your king. The king will take your sons from you, he says. Some will serve in his army, some will be laborers in his fields, some will be his craftsmen, but he won't just take your sons from you. He'll take your daughters too, some to serve in his court, some in his kitchens. But of course, this king will need to pay for that somehow. And so he'll take the best of your land from you. But that won't quite cover it. So actually, he'll then take 10% of everything else as well, all your crops and all your livestock, just to be on the safe side. In fact, basically, Samuel says, you will all end up being his slaves. He'll own everything, even you. And verse 18 is easily missed, but it's actually the culmination of all of the things Samuel's saying. It's the final terrible warning. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief. Crying out for relief, well, well that's what the people of Israel had done again and again and again through the period of the judges. Every time it went wrong, they cried out for relief. And every time they cried out, God had taken pity on them and raised up a judge to save them. But now, he says, he won't do that anymore. Rather than turn to God and turn away from sin to get to the real cause of the problem, they've decided that they're going to reject his advice. They're going to run further away from him. They're going to rebel against him even more for asking for a king like all the other nations. And so Samuel says, fine, you'll get what you want. You're going to face the consequences of your actions. And here's the real blow. And when you realize the mistake you've made, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen but the Lord will not answer you. This is the, the final warning bell Samuel gives them. Is this really what you want? Because if you do, when that day comes, the Lord will not answer your cry for help. And in the final verses, 19 to 21, well, it's as if Samuel might as well have been talking to a brick wall. They completely ignore his warnings. Their heart is set on this king like all the other nations. And so God says, fine, let them have it. Let them face the consequences of their actions. And sometimes God lets us face the consequences of our actions. In fact, in the book of Romans, chapter 1, the apostle Paul explains that people have rejected God, and so one of the main ways God punishes people's rejection is to give them over to their own sin. People pick things of the world instead of God to follow, and so God lets them follow them. 
Maybe we've experienced in our lives that difficult process of desiring something that we know is wrong and ultimately facing the consequences. We see it even in something small, especially over Christmas, indigestion after eating too much. I wonder who that could be. Ultimately, what the people really needed What we really need is a leader who overcomes the real problem. Not the symptoms, but the cause. Our sinful tendency to rebel against God and go after the things of the world instead. Not a king like the other nations, but a king like God. When Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate to be judged, he says he isn't a king like all the other nations. Instead, Jesus is the king who overcomes the real problem, the cause, the root of our sin, our rebellion against God. Unlike the kings of all the other nations, there's no great list of all the things that he will take from us. Instead, he will give everything for us, pouring out his life for us on the cross. Ultimately, this is God's graciousness. We'll go on to see that he won't completely abandon the people of Israel, and he doesn't completely abandon us. He sends Jesus down to earth, his precious son, to save us if we trust in him. And from the time of Jesus, the church becomes the new Israel. And so a question for us off the back of this passage is when are we, as the church, as the new Israel, tempted to go straight to how the world does things for our answers before we ask God, before we look at what God wants, before we open the Bible, before we pray to him? You know, whenever... Whenever the church follows the ways of the world instead of God's ways, bad things happen. Haven't we seen that in the church over the last few decades? Even now, arguments about using a business management model of church or or changing doctrine to be more in line with the world around us, like all the other nations, they rage on. And God's word to Samuel applies to us as well. What is his way? You know, maybe, maybe sometimes it is right. Maybe sometimes he does want us to use certain worldly ways to further the church's ministry to the world. But have we asked him? Have we read his word and see what he tells us? Have we prayed to him? What does he want for us? And you know, it's easy, isn't it, to kind of point finger at bigger organizations, to point a finger at someone else. But what about us? What about you and me, our own individual hearts? How often do we turn to the world for answers before we've ever turned to God? Especially when we think about these grand issues of security, which is what the people of Israel were thinking about. When we think about whether we need to change jobs or move house. When we think about our pensions and our savings and money matters. How often do we actually ask God what he thinks before we go and do it? Just something for us to think about off the back of 1 Samuel. But of course, the good news for us is that when we have put our trust in Jesus, we have the confidence to know that God will never abandon us completely. 
To know that when he looks on us, he sees his precious child. And that even though the most loving of parents has to let a naughty child learn the hard way sometimes, we never need fear that he will leave us there forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that even though we fail you, even though we sin and rebel against you all the time, you haven't left us there, but in your grace have sent your Son. Thank you so much for Jesus, that he isn't a king like other nations, he isn't a king who takes from us, but that he is a king who's given more than we could possibly ask or imagine, who has poured out his life to save us. Please would you be making us people who long to do your will, who look to you before we look around us into the world to see how we should live. Lord, please make us people who live more like you call us to be, more like Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.